I thank God that I was raised in the CD. It just felt like there was always somewhere to go. It felt limitless. I mean, it was just brown people everywhere. I stopped at the Black and Tan many times that night. Oh, it was the best barbecue in the world. But we used to call it Nasty Brothers. But you couldn't get a loan outside of that. They called it redlining. She said, but there's only one thing. They don't let women buy commercial property. Only men. Like one minute I'm living in a neighborhood where I know everybody and everybody knows me in the next minute. It's a very loving community. Like my parents have been in their house 70 years. I mean, where are you going to buy crackling from? Everybody's like, oh yeah, you just got to go to the promenade. It was, it was black people everywhere. Everything was here. I mean, everything. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast that uses community stories to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Seattle's Central District neighborhood, also known as the CD. I'm Myla. I'm Jill. And I'm Dominique. We're three people who didn't grow up in the CD talking to folks who did. When I came here, you couldn't, uh, there's, there's certain districts you could buy a home in, like from, say, uh, Madison. Jackson from 19th down to maybe 25th. And anything outside that, no one would loan you any money to buy a home. That's Cecil Beatty, and he's talking about an experience that many people of color had when they moved to Seattle. For a large part of the 20th century, federal and state laws made it legal for banks, realtors, insurance companies, homeowners, and public agencies to discriminate and segregate on the basis of race and ethnicity. On today's episode, we'll hear stories about housing, where Central District residents could and couldn't live, how they organized to fight housing discrimination, and how decades of segregation laid the groundwork for the displacement impacting Central District residents today. There were no apartments for rent. So we stayed at homes, rented one bedroom. I lived in a house with four bedrooms at 16th and Jefferson, and there's four families in there. Each one had a room, shared the kitchen and the bath. And that's the way we lived in 1943. And they had what they called temporary homes, uh, where there was no running water, you only had electricity. So you had to make a fire in the stove to heat water to wash your face or take a bath. And no refrigeration, so we went down to Columbia City, bought ice and brought it back up and put it in an ice box. Well, there was a realtor here named Hardcastle, Real- Hardcastle yeah. and he owned a real estate company, 24th and Union, right on the corner where the big high rise is going up now. So what he did was that he would buy the home in a block and then sell it to a minority. They go next door and tell the neighbor next door says your value of your house is going to decrease because some black person just moved in next door. So then wow. he was, so I could get you a good price now before you go down. So naturally they would sell. And they call it blockbuster. And they did that all over the United States. Now where it first started I don't know. But uh, I know Hardcastle did here in Seattle. So just one, one, one. Just pretty soon we had that whole central area, all the houses. And uh, other real estate companies, uh, Wendy Men, all those places, wouldn't even let you in the front door uh, for selling your house. You couldn't even get it in the front door, no. But you couldn't get a loan outside of the, the square. They called it redlining. Now, if you wanted to buy a house outside the district, like my doctor, Dr. Joyner, uh, 
wanted to live down on Lake Washington Boulevard. So he got a friend of his, a white lady, to buy the house. And then she quick claim deeded over to him. That's how he moved down on Lake Washington Boulevard. Otherwise, you, you, you couldn't buy a house down there. As Cecil mentions, the legal practices that segregated neighborhoods by race and ethnicity are referred to as redlining. The term refers to maps that literally color-coded neighborhoods and marked certain areas as undesirable for investment and services. Realtors and homeowners could legally refuse to rent or sell property to people of color outside of the red line. Redlining was reinforced by neighborhood covenants, which are essentially legal agreements or contracts. Seattle had many covenants that named the populations that could and couldn't live in specific neighborhoods. Those neighborhoods tended to exclude people of color and Jews, but always excluded African Americans. John Yasutaki remembers some of the community solutions to housing discrimination. There was a dividing line that you knew that you could not go north of um, Madison. Those places were pretty much still, you know, relegated to whites. Those are areas that you knew you wouldn't find many black or brown or yellow faces. Everyone that I knew that I grew up with lived in the central area or the, end of, or, or the edges of the central area, but never farther out, especially not north. I don't think I met anybody that grew up north, literally of Madison, north of actually Union. And it was always drummed in my head that you should own your home. Even though my parents couldn't afford it, most of the families I knew their parents were buying homes because they were taught the same thing. Own your own home. Be a homeowner because you're supporting your, your community and you're supporting their And then you have some say about what goes on if you are a property owner. But the only bank that really was in the neighborhood was in the community. It was Liberty Bank. It was established to meet those needs of the community because of the lending practices of the major banks. You know, you're, you're not going to get treated fairly and that you, you if you do get a loan, you're going to be paying a higher rate. And what is the basis for their setting your rates and stuff? And a significant number of the families that bought homes, bought homes under the GI Bill and, and or they were very frugal about it. They would get homes that would have to be not necessarily the best. But again, there were opportunities, especially if you work with a black broker or real estate, and there were several of them here. Now we're seeing people who haven't even been here a decade moving in. You know, you could walk around the neighborhood and here and not even know anybody. You, we don't know anybody. These are people who, who just recently moved here. Because we knew families that had been here from the very beginning, you know, going back 60, 70 years. And the, and the thing that I, I guess... I chafe at is that when this happens, don't forget the history of the place. Before African Americans started moving to the Central District neighborhood, which was the only place they were able to purchase homes, there were many white families living in the neighborhood. Many of those families moved out as black families moved in. Today we call this phenomenon white flight. Many were motivated by their own racism and the belief that their homes would lose value as the neighborhood became more black. They were also lured to suburban housing developments which were created exclusively for white homeowners. But there were white neighbors who were willing to sell their homes directly to new black residents through monthly cash payments. 
That's how Inye Wokoma's grandfather acquired his first home in the Central District. So my grandfather uh, purchased his first home uh, in the Central District, obviously, because it's the only place you could buy homes if you're black. And he bought his house from Thomas and Elizabeth Grace on 24th and East Marion Street. Uh, but he was making payments directly to Mr. and Mrs. Grace. So there was no bank involved in that, in that transaction. Yeah. Why not? Well, you know, banks were loaning to black people. <laughs> black people were not just going in and saying, I want to get a loan, I got a good government job. You know, if you were going to purchase property, you most likely were buying directly from someone who was selling to you and was willing to extend that form of credit. And, you know, I guess that wasn't all that uncommon, you know, in those days. There was a very organized housing rights movement, which was, you know, uh, how Seattle had sort of coalesced its civil rights priorities was around housing, fairness, housing equality. And so in 1965, um, due to, you know, a lot of pressure from organized civil rights groups, the real estate industry began to open up and folks began to allow black people to buy homes in South Seattle or outside of the Central District. And so um, that happened in 1965, and it was also the, the year that my grandparents bought their home in, uh, in Mount Baker. So as, you know, as young as seven, eight, uh, my sister and I were traveling, you know, just between the two of us, between my grandparents' house on Cascadia near Genesee, our house, which was on 32nd and Day Street, just above the I-90 lid, my cousin's house in Leshy and over here in 24th. And we would just walk. It was a safe place for children. You know what I'm saying? We just had a whole, we had a whole bunch of freedom. We had a whole bunch of freedom to go and be and do, you know, kind of in a lot of ways how we wanted to do. One of the efforts to end housing discrimination in the Central District was led by the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. CORE was a multiracial organization that had chapters in several U.S. cities. Joan and Ed Singler were two founders of the Seattle chapter. In this story, they talk about Operation Window Shop, a campaign that CORE organized where African Americans went out in large numbers all on the same day to shop for real estate outside the red line. Tim and his wife Georgia had four kids and they searched and searched and searched and every time Georgia's white, every time she called, yeah, they would have a house to show and then they'd uh, ask her about her phone number because it, the prefix was EAST, E-A, and if you gave that number, the realtors became very suspicious of who was actually calling. But yeah, that, that led to Tim finally finding a place on the east side where he had to deliver the down pay or the earnest money at night in cash. So because every time they found a place and the neighbors found out about it, they would raise holy hell and the seller would back out. And so Tim had had that happen to him for, I think they looked for well over a year. So when that guy over in Eastgate area, when he offered to sell the house, Tim said, I'll be over with the earnest money at nine o'clock at night. So the neighbors couldn't even see him pull up. Yeah. But there were other people who had trouble uh, getting houses. We, we knew a lot of them through Sid Gerber because he would find houses outside the central area 
and sell them to black people. He would buy them and then sell them back, yeah. 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 And, and Jim Kimbrough uh, stood in for Dr. Miller when he tried to buy a piece of property in Seward Park. And the guy found out that uh, the Millers were black and refused to sell him the piece of property. And then it was like $14,000 for this piece of property down Seward Park. Jim Kimbrough, who's white, called and offered him 12000 and the guy took it. And then he sold it to Dr. Miller for twelve. And then when the owner of the property found out about it, he was very, very angry. And Jim Kimbrough just said to him, your bias just cost you $2,000. Dr. Miller would have given you fourteen. I was actually stunned when Channel 5 actually came to my house when, when I was chair of the housing committee and I was calling for window shop. I was calling for people to go out and look at houses and this just riled the real estate industry to such a degree that Channel 5 decided, well, I guess there's a story there and came and knocked on my door. I, re I was pregnant, <laughs> big and pregnant. But we announced that we were going to send people out to real estate offices and all the real estate offices in King County closed one Sunday. They were all, there was no, you couldn't have bought a house if you tried. Yeah, we, we we, for several weeks, we were uh, campaigning and putting out posters and stuff like that saying Operation Window Shop. I'm trying to remember if we didn't even get a bullhorn and go around the central area advertising that this is a weekend, to, if you're looking for a house, to go look for a house. Uh, and, they all closed. And then, and then, of course, we did line up people that we knew who were looking for houses and people that we actually sent out as testers. And then I got called by a realtor on Mercer Island who obviously was sympathetic and said, I can't tell you who I am. I'm on Mercer Island, but I've been told I have to close my office. Alice Thomas and her husband participated in Operation Window Shop. Core had rigged it so that white couples would pretend they wanted to view the same properties that black couples had tried to view on the same day. They were trying to get people integrated and they got a group together and my husband and I went to that group and we went to Ballard because they had ads in the paper for houses and we went there and my husband and I were the first couple to go in. It was called Ballard Realty and that, that was a big place in the neighborhood and the gentleman was polite when we had the newspaper and we said, well, we'd like to see this, this particular house. He said, oh, uh, I'm sorry, but that house isn't available. And there was another couple waiting. I guess that means conniving, but another couple was waiting. We went outside we, he, and I said, well, can I have your card? And so he said, oh yeah, he was so glad we were leaving. So we told the couple that was waiting that this is what he did, here's his card. They went in, they knew to ask for the redhead. So we fixed it so that he'd have to repeat the same thing, but he didn't. He said, oh, you wanna see that house? Okay, 
off they went. We went back and they made a report. And that's kind of sad. That was kind of sad. I think we all knew they weren't going to. And it finally broke. There was a man by the name of Sid Gerber, was a Caucasian fellow who built houses in neighborhoods that were not for blacks. He'd, he'd take you down, he'd have you look, and then if you were interested, he'd make sure you could purchase that house in the neighborhood. I'm reading a book right now that should be required reading for the entire country. It's called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. It outlines all of the ways that our nation's institutions perpetuated housing segregation, and it asserts that the displacement taking place in black neighborhoods today is a direct result of those policies. It really challenges the common narrative that change is inevitable, as if displacement were just a natural process over which we have no control. In this country, we build wealth through property ownership. The nation's institutions made it so difficult for African Americans to own property that they are now much more vulnerable to displacement. They were never able to acquire the wealth that would allow them to stay in their neighborhoods. I want to give a quick shout out to Gene Denby, one of the hosts of a great podcast called Code Switch, and he talks about this too. He provides a great explanation in a video called Housing Segregation in Everything and the related podcast episode called Location, Location, Location. Everyone should definitely check it out. We always like to point out on this podcast that history connects us to present day. In today's Central District, the same black residents who were once forced to live here are now being displaced at alarming rates. In these next stories, Novella Jackson and Al Doggett speak to this experience. Well, I've been here since I was four, and when you added nieces and nephews, there was probably 40 or 50 of us that lived in what we call the Central District. There were a lot of mom and pops, lots of them, and little small clubs, you know, for entertainment and things. 410, black and tan, pink pussycat. There was just tons of things. As a young adult, I danced a lot. I loved the music. And I always had my family there, so nothing happened. And always having family close, that's not so anymore. You know, I have sister in Bremerton, sister in Everett, sister out close to Ranton, you know. A lot of times I don't go places because I don't have a relative to go with. And I miss that. You know, I haven't been able to come close with new neighbors. I see them out, you know, running and walking their dogs all the time, you know. No one wants to go walking with an old lady. (laughs) And that's the thing, that this whole community is so different. So many high-rises and things. The property value is so high now. I mean, 
I paid 20000 for my house. That's what I could afford, you know, in the 70s. Well, now what is it? 20, 30, 40 times? I wouldn't be surprised if my property tax doesn't go up $1,000 next year. Eventually, it's going to drive the few seniors that are still there out because they're not going to be able to afford it, you know. In the mornings, I'd come in this room, I'd exercise, and across the street, maybe about 10 people would be waiting for the bus, all black, you know. It'd be kind of, and I'd take pictures, you know, and, and this, again, we're talking about in the 70s now, and just to see that group across the street in the mornings now, I look over and, and you know, there's, there's no blacks at all on that bus station where that was, that's all that was there, just to see a, a changes in that sense. So all through the 2000s is when it really began to see a shift. Black families, of course, was being offered money to leave and move way out to Renton, wherever, especially in the last 10 years. It's just happening so fast now. If, if somebody comes in and offers uh, uh, somebody who paid, you know, fifteen, ten thousand dollars $10,000 for their home and somebody offers them $200,000, which isn't much, they take it. Like, this is great. And then, of course, they go and try to find a place and they wind up having to rent. And that's, that's just the bad part of the whole thing. And the sick thing right now is that thing across the street. Everybody in the neighborhood hates what happened with that. There was a nice little house there. It was just, and we knew the family. And uh, the story is just so sad because the family owned the house. The mother still owned it. And uh, apparently the mother's husband got sick, you know, and he was going through some real severe medical problems that they needed funds. And so the developers got to her. And I think it was like $300,000. It just opened for a house for um, showing about a week or so ago. And we went over to see it. 1.7 mil. Real estate taxes now, we're getting killed. And I couldn't believe that I'd ever be in a situation where you can't pay your real estate taxes, you're going to have to move. It's that, that's just... You know, people who are moving in here can pay 2000 3000 a month for rent. But I think it would, it would be important for, the, for them to know the history of what this community was about, the, the vital energy that was here. You know, it's, it's not there now in that same way. And again, we talk about the Central District. It's gone. Once the process of gentrification and displacement starts, it eventually impacts everyone. Today, Central District residents of all races and ethnicities are losing their homes and small businesses. John Yasutaki's uncle lost an entire apartment building that primarily housed Japanese-American families. My uncle had an apartment building right on Jackson, right next to Wonder Bread. And he had a significant number of them with Japanese-Americans. This is my understanding. They came in and tried to negotiate to buy my uncle out, and he refused. So what they did was they condemned it, gave him a what they call fair settlement, turned around 
and sold it. Many of those families have been there a long time. My uncle owned that apartment building for a long time, uh, Uncle Eddie. And so, you know, it that that's that's an example. There must have been 30 or 40 families that had to move, got displaced. And so that's the impact. And now what's there are businesses and some condominiums and stuff that were you know priced out of the price range of the, the people to buy back in. But I guess the most unfortunate thing is the lack of understanding about the history and, and what was really the heart and soul of the central area. If Jackson ends up being like East Union, which I'm guessing it will, I don't personally feel like I want to live here anymore. Cappy Coates has lived in the Central District for over 30 years, where he also owns a community boxing gym. 23rd and East Union is not like it used to be. I mean, I used to feel that way. I loved going to the gym. I loved that corridor, I, you know. But I go there now and it's like I don't, you know, I don't ever see anybody. I can't imagine walking around in either one of those places and, you know, feel like I'm belonging to a neighborhood. Sad. And then I also feel like there's not really much point in me cultivating my house as an individual home because I'm not sure that it will, anyone will want it as an individual home. So, you know, that's kind of weird too to feel like, wow, I'm, my relationship with my house is changing. Because it's, I mean, it would be different if I was passing the house on to other people who wanted to come and enjoy the house, but I'm guessing that's probably not going to happen. So I'm guessing my house is dying. That's really weird to me. And it's a, it's a great house. I love that house. And it's been a big part of our business. All our boxers have come through that house. It's been a really important part of the business. And to just think that it could be the it for it, you know? Even though housing discrimination has been illegal since the mid-60s, the remnants of it still impact people's lives today. And just because it's illegal to deny people housing based on their race or ethnicity doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. K.L. Shannon grew up in the CD and gives so much back to the community as a labor organizer. Her experience looking for a home is an important reminder that housing discrimination is not a thing of the past. We lived in the central area. You know, we lived like in apartments. We had a great, you know, the owner was a great guy named Paul Green. Um, we were there for six years. We were paying twelve fifty for three bedrooms, and now it's it's interesting because I have a good job. I make a a, a good salary and you know decent benefits, but I couldn't afford to stay here. You know, because I had you know I have both my nephews that are living with me and my mother, and you know I knew that the housing crisis was bad somewhere I didn't stay in the loop as far as as knowing that you know it's really bad in the central area you know because I'm thinking it's going to be easy to you know to find something you know I got a good job I'm looking I'm like I'm thinking this is a joke you know like I'm looking I'm finding houses in the central area but they're wanting like 2200 2500 you know, and I'm like, oh, my God. And then not just not just the reality of how, how much rent were, but the racism. I would like call and and, and we, we would have been communicating by email and then we get on the phone 
and whole tone change. You know, you know it exists. You've heard it. You've talked to people that it, but when it actually is happening to you, it's like, oh my God. I mean, I was like, I didn't think I was ever going to find anything. I mean, it took me a year and some months before I even found something. It was so horrible. It was so horrible. A special thank you to all of the people who were willing to share their personal stories of loss. Our homes are extensions of us, and as our homes die, part of us dies with them. Hopefully these stories can help cities think about how to grow and change in ways that allow residents to feel safe and thrive and stay in their homes and communities. You can follow Shelf Life on Twitter at Shelf Life Story, on Instagram at shelf underscore life underscore stories, and on Facebook at Shelf Life Community Story Booth. Engage with us and let us know what you thought of the episode by using hashtag ShelfLifePod. You can listen to all of our published community stories online at ShelfLifeStories.com. Shelf Life is a community story project that is recording and sharing oral history interviews with people who have roots in Seattle's Central District neighborhood. We are artists, filmmakers, historians, entrepreneurs, librarians, activists, and neighbors. Our goal is to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Central District communities. We hope these stories can contribute historical context to the conversations that shape the way we think about change, community, displacement, and growth in Seattle and in cities around the country. Shelf Life, the podcast, was recorded, edited, and produced by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, and Dominique Meeks in Seattle, Washington. Original score by Bubba Jones. Special thanks to King County for Culture for the grant that makes this podcast possible. The stories featured in the podcast were recorded in 2016 and 2017 by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, Dominique Meeks, Henry Luke, Chieko Phillips, Leilani Lewis, Rachel Kessler, Sarah Post, and Lulu Miles. Thank you for listening.